Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Everyone, welcome to the 112th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So uh, good afternoon to you, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. As the listeners can probably tell by the audio difference, I am at a work conference this week, an industry conference in Utah. So that's why we're recording via Zoom this week. Yeah, yeah. We haven't done one of these in a while in person. So and it's actually probably for the better, at least this week, because our office is a little tore up with this build out. But um, in the final stages. Yeah, yeah. Hope I mean next next week we might do an in person. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but how's Utah? Utah's amazing. Mild weather um during the afternoon gets up to be about 75, 76. Uh, getting adjusted to the elevation is uh, is still something that's new to me. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And just have to tell listeners, because I find it kind of comical that uh, that you rode a horse today. Yes, listeners, I have never ridden a horse in my life. And I rode a horse today. And um, Jenna, for those that know uh, Jenna, our director of marketing, uh, she owns a horse. And so this is a big deal. Uh, my wife was loving it. So I did ride a horse for the first time ever. Nice. Yeah, we got to do a team event uh, with Jenna's horse and go hang out for a little bit. I guess I'm up for it now. I've done it once. I can do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, as always, we will uh, just start off and take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of today uh, of the market close on August 25th. It's about 4.30. So the markets have been closed for about a half an hour. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 2.4% in August and up 19.8% for the year. The Dow up 1.4% for the month and up 15.7% for the year. The NASDAQ up 1.85% for the month and up 15.95% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 0.7% for the month and up 13.5% for the year. Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 0.6% for the month and up 8.6% for the year. Uh, The three-month T-bill yield is currently sitting at 0.05%, two-year Treasury yield at 0.25%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 1.35%. Uh, Big news and headlines, um, current events from the week, uh, not really much, Matt, other than, you know, the large cap indexes continue to flirt with 52 week highs. It's been a good week so far for most of the main indexes that we track. Um, The only other thing that I can think of is that the House took up uh, three budget bill, or excuse me, three bills today uh, with the budget infrastructure and voting rights. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that the House passed the infrastructure bill um, so that's something to keep an eye on here going forward. Yeah, probably go back to the Senate, let them fight it out. Definitely not a done deal yet. Um, and I will throw it out there that uh, currently in this legislation for the budget, they're trying to squeeze tax reform into the budget. So listeners need to be aware of that. Still being negotiated, but it won't be a separate budget, anymore, uh, a separate bill anymore. Right, right. 
Um, other than that, been a pretty quiet week in terms of news. So why don't you go ahead and start with some tweets and research? Yeah, I'll kick it off, Mark. So I'm going to start with this one first for listeners. This is a tweet from 10K Carl. Uh, he's a trader I follow on Twitter. He posted a chart from B of A Global and Bloomberg showing the benchmark rates to ship a 40-foot uh, container uh, box from China. Okay, So um, this chart is going to be accessible on our show notes. Before I go any farther, Jenna, our director of marketing, is going to share with the listeners, Mark, and how they could find this information. Yeah, you can find our show notes on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn at Jessup Wealth Management and the rest of our social media on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Jessup Wealth. Thank you, Jenna. So um, this chart um, is, is pretty interesting to me, Mark. So it used to cost around $2,000 to ship a 40-foot box from China to either LA or Amsterdam pre-COVID. Now, due to surging demand, the cost has risen all the way to 14000 Now, Mark, if that doesn't indicate strong demand, I don't know what does. I think that this is another strong data point telling us that consumer spending is still strong. Mark, your comments. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I can't remember who I was talking to the other day. Uh, we were down in Kentucky last week. Um you know, for some work stuff. And someone said that their wife works in this industry and deals with China shipping goods over to us all the time. And, um, you know, pretty much, you know, not quote for quote, he pretty much said that it's almost like they're holding it ransom because they can, you know, China can pretty much charge whatever they want right now for this stuff. So this doesn't really surprise me. And, you know, I just talked to someone who's in the industry of doing this. So, um, definitely still indicates the strong demand and, you know, us as America, we're not just going to accept not having the goods we want to have to buy. So, you know, China's using that to their advantage right now. They absolutely are. And I've seen spikes in shipping rates uh, in the past. This chart only goes back a decade listeners, but it's going to show a dramatic sharp spike. It's only a matter of time before this comes back down. Uh, I don't foresee this hanging out at this level for too long. But again, it just to show you that short term, as things continue to open up in this post-COVID lockdown environment, demand is strong. And that's why I wanted to highlight it for the listeners, Mark. Okay, Mark, my next uh, piece that I want to discuss today is a tweet about inflation. This time, the data points to food prices. So this tweet is from Naomi Prince. She's an investigative journalist. And food prices in July were up. 31% from the same month last year. Now, this is according to an index compiled by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. A portion of this rise is transitory, fueled by supply chain disruptions in extreme weather. Now, one thing to note for listeners is that central banks often disregard food and fuel inflation when setting policy because it's viewed historically as some of the most volatile categories in the typical basket of consumer goods and services. Now, Mark, this is a headwind for the lower end consumer and definitely something that should be watched. My two cents, after the extended unemployment benefits drop off in the other 25 states on September 3rd, I'm hoping that supply chains continue to improve and prices come back down. Like gasoline prices, they rise fast, but of course they're slow to come down. 
Mark, we have these charts uh, showing this on our show notes. What are some of your thoughts as I mentioned this? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, definitely something to note that I guess hasn't really been talked about much um, in the major media news outlets. But um, I think the only thing I really have to add, Matt, I think is that, you know, this stuff is going to happen, right? This stuff has happened over time. And, you know, it seems like it's been going on for a long period of time right now. But in reality, you know, if we look back over the past decade or even two decades, you're going to see stuff like this happen. But, you know, at the end of the day, it returns to normalcy. You know, if you look at, you know, at, on a chart from the left side to the right side, yeah, it's slowly rising. Then you'll see these spikes and you'll have it come back down to its, its trend line, uh, if you would. So, you know, I think this is something that is short term. I'm personally not too concerned about this persisting for years and years to come. Could be wrong, but again, just my input. I would agree. I don't think this will persist for a long time. And I think how a lot of uh, food producers are dealing with this is they're lowering the package size. And I was talking to my wife, Rachel, about this recently. You know, all of a sudden, you know, that bag of chips is, is, isn't as heavy as it was before. Or, you know, again, they're just lowering the package size, keeping the price the same. And that is kind of how they're uh, absorbing this cost, if that makes sense. Speaking of that, that's one of the biggest ripoffs known to man is the amount of chips these producers put in the bag. It's like not even half full. Oh, it off. I, I poked the bear. This is great. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's every bag of chips you open. Nothing is filled to the brim. So if anyone has any recommendations about a brand that fills the, the complete chip bag, send it your boy's way. I have an idea. Pringles. Pringles. Yeah, that's true. I'm not a huge Pringles fan though. They do. Uh, I'm not a Pringles fan either, but I think they do. I think yeah, they do. they do. That's, but technically they're not in a bag. They're in a can. Doesn't apply then. <laughs> Doesn't apply. I'll still wait, wait, wait for someone's answer. Uh, this is going to be good. I could just see the emails now. Okay. <laughs> My next tweet, this is an update on consumer credit. Okay. So according to TransUnion's Q2 2021 Industry Insights Report, Mark, credit card balances have decreased by 4.1% year over year. Reduced spending means that consumers were able to put more money towards paying down their revolving credit card balances. I'm going to dig a little deeper. In fact, the average credit card balance among millennials declined $4,200 this year, and that's slightly less than it was about $4,500 a year ago. Now, a similar decline can also be seen among Generation X and baby boomer generations. For Gen Xers, their average balance is down to $6,400 from $6,900, and baby boomers declined from $5,700 roughly to $5,100. So another positive data point showing the average American consumer has the potential to continue to spend, and they are being responsible since COVID hit. Also, this doesn't point, in my opinion, to the average consumer being tapped out anytime soon. Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's, you know, more of just what we've seen, you know, more data to prove that, you know, the more money, obviously, people have in their pockets, they're going to continue to pay down, you know, high interest debt like credit cards. Um, you know, I'd like to see 
Yeah. You know what I really like to see is the number of people or the amount of money that's getting paid on federal student loans while the interest rate is zero. That would be really interesting to me. I would love that data. Because there's two two trains of thought there, right? You know, one is, you know, us from, you know, and we're in the industry. So people might say that we're biased, but this just makes sense to me. If you have that at zero percent, then I think, you know, you should be investing that money because you can earn a heck of a lot more than, you know, obviously the hurdle right there. Then the other side of thinking is, hey, well, this is at, you know, zero percent interest, maybe I should just pay down the principal as much as possible and be aggressive with it. And, you know, that conversation might be for another day. Um, but, you know, it's it's a really good sign that people are, are, are paying off their credit cards, you know, inevitably and unfortunately, us as Americans are consumers. And I have a feeling that, again, like food prices we were just talking about will come down. I think, you know, this will go back to its normal, you know, whatever the number is average over the past decade, and it'll begin to rise again. But as for right now, you know, it's good that people are paying down debt. Yeah, you know, I like to highlight it for listeners, because it shows that the average American consumer has the ability to spend. And I think that is very noteworthy, especially, and I mentioned it many times before in the podcast, with two thirds of our economy, we're spending lead. And now we're showing hard data that supports the ability to spend. I think that bodes very well in the near term. Yeah, I think it does too. All right. I got one last tweet I would like to share. It's a quote, and this is a tweet from Morgan Housel, who we uh, reference and quote very often on our podcast. He posted this on Twitter on August 17th, Mark. Quote, for most investors, 99% of good investing is doing nothing. And the other 1% is how you behave when the world is going crazy. I'll let you go first. Yeah, I really like it because I think the hidden message in here, if, you know, Morgan did this on purpose or not, you know, I think it goes to show you how much more often we're in good times than bad, right? There, there I, I would agree that about 1% of, of time, there's absolute chaos in the world, right? The financial collapse, the tech bubble, the 87 market crash, covid that's such a small, small percentage of the time. And unfortunately, people spend their time focusing on that instead of the 99% of good times. And, you know, I think, you know, Warren Buffett said this too, that, you know, most of the time he's just sitting on his hands doing nothing. But just with the way people are today, they feel like they always have to be doing something. And that's not necessarily the case. So, you know, a lot of the times it, you know, I was talking to this when we were working with clients with 401k plans down in Kentucky last week, the people who I see who are the most successful by the time they retire is they're super aggressive in their 401k when they start, when they're young, they have a really good contribution rate. They increase it every single year and they don't touch the investments. They just let it go. And then by the time they retire, you know, they're pretty surprised by with what they have. Now, again, this doesn't apply to everybody, but it's just, I'm saying, you know, the feedback that I've been getting, that is what has suited people the most. So don't get concerned in, in thinking that you have to be, you know, placing trades every day, every month or every couple of months, because it's just simply not the case. Absolutely. And listeners, the other important thing I want you to remember is this. When times get crazy, everyone's time horizon comes in. 
Everyone's worried about what the market's going to do the next week and the next month. And for the average investor, their time horizon is decades. It doesn't matter what the market's going to do over the next month. And so I want to throw this out there because right now the market's quote unquote stable, normal. We're not seeing a lot of short-term volatility. Mark, when I both know it's going to return at some point. And we want to be that voice of reason that during those times, don't let your trading window or your time horizon come in to worry about what the market's going to do in those short periods of time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right, I'll send it back to you, my friend. Yeah, the first uh, and really only thing I have this week, because it's a little lengthier, um, comes from an article written by Jonathan Clements on the Humble Dollar. And this is titled Go to Extremes. And in this article, Jonathan outlines 18 things to maximize or minimize when it comes to your financial life. So I'm going to go over the ones that I think are most important. Um, But again, you can check out our show notes, uh, as Jen mentioned, if you want to read this whole article. So number one, he said, was to to minimize cash. With short-term interest rates so low, keeping money in savings accounts and money market funds seems especially grim right now. But the truth is cash has always been a lousy long-term holding, pretty much guaranteeing your money will depreciate once inflation and taxes are figured out. And this is another conversation that I was having with someone the other day, is that they're going to be inheriting a sum of money. And they said, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to be really aggressive with that money. And I said, okay, just talk to me a little bit more and and tell me why, what is, what is your goal for this money? Is it something that you're going to need, you know, in the next couple of years? And she looked at me and she said, no, there's not going to be a need in the the next couple of years. It's going to be probably 15, 20 years down the road. And I was like, okay, well, if if you leave that money in cash, you know, you're going to lose your purchasing power. And we went through the whole exercise. And I said, if you're not going to need this money within the next couple of years, then why not be more aggressive with it? Right. It just makes sense. I think that, you know, if if people automatically come into a sum of money, they want to protect that. And I get it. But if there's not a short term need for it, then I think you have to at least invest or be aggressive with some of that money. Right. I absolutely agree. I think what happens too often, Mark, clients let their emotions dictate how they invest, whether it's through an inheritance um, or other measures. Ultimately, you got to look at what is the goal of this money? When will I need it? When am I going to spend it? How much liquidity do I need? That needs to be the driving force behind your investment allocation, not emotion. Right. And then number two, just to to go off of that, it's maximizing stocks, right? So owning a diversified stock portfolio has proven to be a remarkably simple strategy to build wealth over the long haul. And the only struggle is ignoring the constant temptation to focus on short-term results. So I won't go any further than that since you touched on that with Morgan's tweet. Didn't Uh, need to pull your thunder on that one. Yeah. You always seem to somehow. (laughs) And listeners, I had no idea what he was going to talk about here. I had no clue. Intuition. Yep. Um, The next one was maximizing tax deferral. I've lately been hearing a fair amount of carping about traditional retirement accounts where you get an initial tax deduction, but have to pay income taxes on withdrawals. I think this is wrongheaded. Do the math and you'll find the initial tax deduction often effectively pays for the eventual tax bill. I think this would be a good exercise for people to go and do math because, you know, everyone wants, you know, 
tax-free money, right? So everyone initially is drawn to the Roth, but people don't take into consideration how important that tax deduction is for them during their working lives, right? So it's just kind of interesting to me that, you know, when we're in retirement, everyone focuses so much on minimizing the tax bill, but in your working years, it's not necessarily the case. So I think people need to be more consistent with that and realize that even if, you know, you're not contributing to a Roth or you're ineligible to contribute to a Roth, there's still a huge benefit in, in, in contributing to a traditional IRA or traditional 401k over a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k. So it's just something that I don't think is talked about very often. That's a great point. The other thing I want to throw out there is, you know, if you're real close to retirement, I'd say definitely within five years, but possibly even 10, you know, starting to try to build up the Roth route, if you run some numbers, is not going to make sense. There's a break-even time period of paying that tax up front before you're going to start taking withdrawals. That's another factor. I won't dive deep into it, Mark, but that's another factor people need to think about. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's good to have a little bit of both. It's good to have a little bit of tax deferred money, some tax free money and um, taxable money in like a, a, an individual or joint account that's taxed at the capital gains rate when you sell something, because that way your advisor can help, you know, minimize your tax liability when you do get to retirement. Absolutely. Uh, the next thing he said was minimizing possessions. We all need some possessions to lead a comfortable life. And we all have some possessions that we treasure. But it's the other stuff that's the problem, the stuff that finds its way into the basement. And if it never leaves, it ends up being a burden to our heirs. By mm. contrast, money spent on experiences doesn't turn into a burden. Instead, after an experience such as a concert, a meal out or a vacation, all that's left is the memory. And more often than not, it's not a fond one. And I have fallen victim to this, Matt. So as you know, I'm, I love to you know, work out. We're big Peloton fans and this type of thing. So I like to start like tracking all of like the fitness trackers, right? The amount of freaking trackers that I've bought over my lifespan <laughs> that I don't use anymore. And in my opinion, were a waste of my money. I can't even count how many they were from Apple watches to, you know, other stuff, because I wanted to track my steps or, you know, track this metric or that metric, yeah, your aura ring that I lost, you know, three weeks after I bought it. Um, you know, that's just one example of like, looking back on it, I'm like, really didn't do me any good. Um, but yeah, I agree with them. I mean, I'm a big experience guy, so I would rather spend money on experience. And I'm not telling people not to buy anything nice for themselves or any possessions, but you know, it's that like, I call it like the, uh, the iPhone syndrome, right? When you see the new flashy iPhone or the new flashy Apple watch, it's like, oh, I got to go have that. And then you use it for a month or two and you're like, eh, I don't really wear it as much as I should or use it as much as I should, or it wasn't that much better than, than what I had, you know? And then you have that regret looking back, right? Well put. I have nothing to add there. You said it perfectly. Um, the next thing is maximize anticipation and added reason to think long and hard. You'll enjoy a lengthy period of eager anticipation, which may prove to be the most pleasurable part of any expenditure. Planning to buy a new car or take a vacation, start thinking about these things far ahead of time so you have months to savor your future spending. And I'm just, you know, I just brought this up because I'm big on people planning for big expenses, right? If you know, that you're going to get married in a couple of years, or you know you want to buy a new car, you know you want to buy a new house. 
you know, it's good to anticipate that, get excited about it because you're excited to get married or buy a new house. And that'll make it easier for you to, to force yourself to save for that. Because if you don't, then, then you don't get the, the wedding that you want. Or you don't get the nice car that you want or the house that you want. And then that's negatively going to impact your, your quality of life, right? So if you plan and anticipate for these things, I know people don't like budgeting, but when you're planning for these big ticket items, it's almost exciting and invigorating. It's like, okay, if I, you know, if I save and invest X amount a month, I can get there and I can get the things that I want. Absolutely. And a lot of these brokerage firms, you can have multiple accounts. You can nickname them. This is my, my Christmas fund account. This is my vacation fund account. You know, you can segment them and, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can save for these things, be in the market, earn a better return over time than you would in cash. My two cents. Yep. Um, so in addition to that, minimizing hassles. When we imagine owning a boat or a second home, we tend to think only about how much fun it would be. But what oh, about the hassles? Gonna be good. This is going to be good. After the initial thrill, the fun from such purchase will start to fade and the hassles will likely loom large. And the biggest example, I might be stealing your thunder now, Matt, is someone buying a larger house or a house that requires more upkeep, right? So they just look at the monthly mortgage payment and think, hmm, this fits into the budget, okay? This is not gonna be a problem. But then you have the landscaping that you have to keep up with and the yard is bigger that requires a riding mower. You don't have a riding mower, so you have to buy a riding mower or you have to pay a landscaping company to come take care of the flowers and cut the lawn. Um, if you have a dog and the house doesn't have a fence and you want to put a fence in, you got to account for that. If it's an older home, you're going to have to replace the roof and the HVAC system and update appliances maybe. So you have to think about all that stuff. And I'm huge, huge on minimizing hassle in my life. I hate hassle. Um, and it just makes life easier. So, you know, if you see this you know, new, big, flashy, whatever you want to buy, just think about what the hassles are that going to come with that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's not all going to be rainbows and butterflies. And like back to my house example, it's your only expense monthly is not just going to be the mortgage payment and the utility payments. No, well put. I mean, this is across the board from RVs, boats, second homes. I mean, Imagine the person that's like, hey, I'm going to have this second home, but when they go to visit, you know, their family's having a blast, but then, you know, the parents are taking care of the yards, doing maintenance updates, and, you know, it creates a lot more hassle and a lot more work. I just think you got to be realistic about where your priorities are and focus on those. And yeah. that goes for every part of life, but especially on this topic. Yeah. Next is minimizing unhappy times. This isn't just about avoiding purchases that come with significant hassles. It also means spending the least time possible commuting, doing disliked chores, and with disagreeable people. <laughs> I like, I like it. Yeah, no, I, you know, like for example, to me, you know, my commute to work is important to me um, because I like to run a tight ship with my schedule, right? So with me just moving closer to the office, that just increased my quality of life substantially because now I can fit in more things or I have time to do more things than commuting. And again, I only lived 
you know, 15 minutes from the office, but now I only live three minutes from the office. So that's just a big win for me. Um, and you know, that makes me more happy. So I think it's important also, you know, not just looking at the dollars and cents, but just making sure you're happy, spending time with the people you love, the people you care about, the people you have fun with and spend time doing the things you want to do. But to be able to do that, you have to be responsible with your finances, right? You're exactly right. I mean, look at you. You, you now created two and a half hours a week of additional time that you could do other things with. And that's substantial for you and me. Yeah, it and, is. You know, and, and again, we've made that a priority. I live very close to work as well and it allows me to maximize my time and efficiency. And I just think that became a priority and we put that financially above other things. I right. love it. Right. Um, next is maximizing compounding. This is partly about maximizing time in the market, but buying stocks early in life and by helping the next generation to get started. So again, what's the biggest regret that we hear from people? I should have started. It. Yeah. Should have started earlier, right? <laughs> That's right. And so, the other regret I, I hear, I'm just going to throw it out there. In times of those crazy market corrections, COVID was the last one. People said, oh, it's different this time. I'm going to have to sell. And they look back and they shouldn't have done it. Yep. That's exactly right. So the last one is minimizing noise. By this, I mean uh, minimize consumption of useless information, especially market information. Listening to CNBC and tracking the financial markets throughout the day will likely lead to more bad decisions than good. What if you can consume this information without acting on it? You're still wasting great gobs of precious time. Hey, listeners, I have a secret I'm going to share with you. It's an open secret. CAC is not on in our office because it doesn't not, matter. Right. Right. And actually, it's funny that we're talking about this topic because just yesterday I deleted the CNBC app off of my phone. Look at you. Love that. I was just sick of all the alerts and all of the bogus stuff that came out of there. And again, I'm not trying to trash CNBC. They do have some really good stuff. They have some really smart people on, but most of the time you don't need to be getting dinged 10 times throughout the day about what is moving up or what is moving down because really it doesn't matter. And, you know, I was just sick of it. I was like, oh, I don't think I need it. So it's been great without it. Golf clap for you, brother. I love it. <laughs> Uh, so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, this one came from an article written by Harry Sitt on the finance buff titled, How to Buy I-Bonds, Soup to Nuts. And I just want to throw this out there, Matt. Obviously not an investment recommendation. It's just something that I think not a lot of people um, know about or, or even know exists. So I want to just put it out there. Okay. Um and I think that this article provides some really good info on what I-bonds are and how they work. Um, you know, we're going to go over some of that today, but he also walks through the process of purchasing an I-bond because it's kind of irregular from purchasing another investment. Um, but I'm not going to get into that whole process today. So you can read the full article again by looking at our show notes for this episode. Uh, and Jenna mentioned where you can find that earlier in the episode. So um, check that out if you want to read the, the, the full article. Um, so he starts off by saying the annualized interest rate on I-bonds is currently 3.54% in the first six months. And that's annualized, obviously. Um, if that's not high enough to entice you, maybe you'll be more interested when the rate in the next six months possibly goes higher. So I think, you know, this is just important, Matt, because, you know, everyone's questioning lately, 
you know, where should we park short-term cash that we're going to need for emergencies or we're going to need in the next 12 months to put a down payment on a home? And there's just really not a lot of good options right now, right? Um, but people don't really, you know, bring up I-bonds at all. So I just wanted to go through this a little bit. And Harry says that I-bonds are short for Series I savings bonds. They are bonds issued by the U.S. government directly to retail investors. Currently, I-bonds carry favorable interest rates over other CDs and bonds. Think of I-bonds as a flexible term variable rate CD. You're required to hold them for at least one year. After that, you can cash out at any time you'd like or choose to hold them for up to 30 years from the original time of purchase. If you cash out within five years, you forfeit interest earned in the previous three months whereas an early withdrawal penalty on a typical commercial CD is often six months to 12 months of interest. So that's important to note, Matt. So it is, the yeah. penalty is not as much and the interest rate's higher right now. So right. Um, the only thing is, is that the government knows that this is a pretty good deal. So they limit how much you can buy each year. Oh, so, you can, so you can only buy $10,000 per person in I-bonds each and every year, right? So, but the, the, the interesting thing is though, so say, take me for an example. Me as an individual, I can buy 10,000 in savings bonds. My wife, Kenzie, can buy 10,000 in savings bonds. If I had a trust, my trust could also buy 10,000 in savings bonds. And my business technically could also buy 10,000 in savings bonds. So technically, if I wanted to in a given year, I could buy $40,000 worth of savings bonds. Not saying that I would do that, but that's well, just- Too, too, too bad we can't get Maple a uh, social security number, you know? I know, I'm gonna work on that. I'm gonna work on uh, that, for, yeah. For, uh, for, for, for listeners that don't know the Maple reference, uh, Mark and Kenzie have an Instagram star dog. Uh, her yeah. name is Maple. Um, and let's give her a plug. Let's, let's give her a plug for her Instagram. What's her? Yeah, what's her I think handle? her. Uh, I think her Instagram is Maple the Bassett on Instagram. So there, my my wife runs that account, um, and she does a pretty good job with it. She does marketing and social media for her uh, for her career. So she loves doing that for for Maple. So if you want to see cute uh, Bassett hound pictures, go ahead and check out Maple the Bassett, uh, the official sponsor of the Independent Advisors Podcast. First one. I love it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's that's the stipulation is that you, as an individual, you can only buy, you know, ten thousand dollars worth of this stuff because it is such, you know, such a good idea. Yep. Um, so unlike a typical CD with a fixed interest rate for the entire term, the interest rate on your I bonds change in six month cycles. So you stay on the current rate for the full six months and then you get on a new rate for another six months and the new rate after that for another six months and so on and so forth. Um, and the interest rate is, these are not my words, Matt, these are Harry's words. The interest rate is guaranteed to at least match inflation. If inflation goes up, the interest rate on your I-bonds automatically goes up. The I-bonds you buy now only match inflation. Even merely matching inflation makes I-bonds attractive when other CDs and bonds don't keep up with inflation. So that's more attractive too, Matt, right? Because if you just have your money sitting in a bank account at one of the big banks in this country, it's not earning anything. It's, you're actually losing money because we have inflation that's you know around, depending on who you ask, you know between two and three percent. The silent killer. Yeah. 
Um, tax treatment. So this is interesting and kind of different from other investments. You pay tax on the interest from I-bonds only when you decide to cash out, whereas you must pay taxes on the interest from CDs and bond funds every year if you reinvest the interest. The interest from I-bonds is exempt from state and local income taxes too. So it's only taxable at the 